I think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to our webpage at ithinkthereforeifan.com. That's all one word. Click on the link that says donate and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. And as always, thank you very much for listening. This week, we discuss American Horror Story, Halloween, and The Haunting of Hill House. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Today's podcast is about American Horror Story. Ooh, American Horror Story. We've recently edited a collection of papers on American Horror Story and philosophy, which was a lot of fun because it's one of our favorite shows on TV. Available at Amazon.com and fine booksellers near you. (laughs) Uh, So American Horror Story is currently in its eighth season. Mm -hmm. Eighth season is Apocalypse, which is fun because it's the blending of a lot of different storylines on the show. Mm -hmm. Where, where, Where do you rate Apocalypse? Amongst your very favorites, least uh, favorites? Well, I'd say you and I have a little bit different impressions. I, I'm enjoying this season a lot. It's very campy. Mm-hmm. And um, as far as making my like top three, I think it, uh, it's not going to make the, the top three for that reason. I like mm-hmm. camp, right. um, but I prefer more genuine horror tropes. Right, it's, it's a little on the Scream Queen side. Right, which I loved the first season of, and then it was just over-the-top camp. And Scream Queens is also Ryan Murphy, who loves to be campy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, <laughs> and, and and like I say, I like that. I, I can think of movies that are over-the-top camp, like Drag Me to Hell, or even Happy Death Day, that I enjoyed. Um, and I thought Drag Me to Hell was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I thought so, too. Yeah, so, so it's... Um, I I have less patience with people just being catty, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is why, actually, for me, Coven isn't right up there at the top. Even though I really liked Coven, it's it's a lot of women just kind of uh, cast in shade or whatever that expression, whatever the kids say. Yeah, yeah. Throwing shade. shade. <laughs> Standing in the shade when it's not even sunny. Um, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, Coven's probably my least favorite season of American really? Horror Story. Oh, I didn't realize that. Um, yeah, but I like it quite a bit. Um, although if it didn't have the voodoo zombies, it would have no sort of redeeming qualities. Oh, yeah, the voodoo zombies are a lot of fun. We're going to talk about them this episode. Um, yeah, so what we're going to talk about primarily in this episode are the first four or five seasons. Our authors mm-hmm. are um, going to talk about those. A lot of discussion of Coven, <laughs> um, some murder house and hotel. Right, right. And then the book goes up beyond that, but mm-hmm. these are the, the topics we ended up discussing. And so just in case you aren't familiar with the show, uh, when you're, we're comparing seasons, it's, it's almost like comparing books uh, because the, the seasons in American Horror Story are self-contained. 
so that, you know, season one has a set of characters and takes place in a location. And then season two has a different set of characters played by, in many cases, the same actors, but in different mm-hmm. roles. And, and sometimes um, not, right? Yeah, Certain and then there's some overlap. And there's a lot of overlap this season. Right, so, right. It's a lot of fun. Okay, so in this um, episode, we interviewed some of the folks that wrote papers um, for our book, or chapters of our book. Um, we talked to Elizabeth Rard, Rachel Robison-Green, Charlene Elsby, Seth Walker, and Carrie Callis. So let's, let's go to the interviews. Um, Rach, what do we know about Elizabeth Rard? Well, Elizabeth Rard is currently working on her PhD in philosophy at UC Davis, and she's a philosophy instructor at Reedley College. Hi, Liz. Hi, Liz. Hi, Richard. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I am doing very well, thank you. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for talking to us. So, Rach, do you want to dive in? Sure. All right. So, most of us tend to think of death as a bad thing. What do you think are the most common explanations for that fact? Excellent question. So I think there's actually a few different explanations for that. First of all, you can get a fairly straightforward explanation from something like evolution. Mm -hmm. Um, We are, you can think of us as gene delivery devices. And the longer we hang around, the more chance we have to pass on our genetic information. So it would make sense that we'd have kind of an innate fear of death. In addition, for most of us, the first few times we interact with or experience death, it's a very negative situation. So a loved one has died a pet has died, and this causes us as living things quite a bit of harm. And so we associate death as something that harms us. We associate it with being a bad thing um, and causing a lot of pain. And, of course, I think a lot of us, when we fear death, we're really fearing dying, which is different. Mm -hmm. It's an experience we have while we're still alive, and most of us don't know how we're going to die, and there are a lot of really painful ways to die. And so I think those things kind of get wrapped up together. But when we take a step back and we ask if we should actually fear death, fear what happens to us after we die, I think there are still a few reasons to be anxious or to have a rational fear there. For starters, I don't think we can know what's going to happen to us after we die until we've actually died. And there are a couple of different possibilities. It could be the case that after we die, we just stop existing. So like Socrates said, it's like going into a deep sleep and then there's just nothing. Now, this doesn't sound like a bad thing, but there are a lot of good things that we associate with being alive and with being sort of conscious thinking entities. Um, For instance, we get to build relationships, we get to interact with loved ones, we get to pursue goals and projects that give our lives meaning. And if we stop existing after we die, then all of that goes away. So that seems like a loss. It seems like something that we regret that we're going to lose, possibly. In addition, there's the possibility that after we die, our consciousness is going to hang around in some form. And that's not necessarily going to be a good thing. Um, It could be the case that after we die, we're really happy and we get to play video games all day and it's great. And we get to eat cupcakes. Could be the case that after we die, things are really bad for us. And there are, you know, fire clowns and mountains of caterpillars and all sorts of terrible (laughs) stuff that we don't want to experience. Um, So I think it's that unknown combined with our ability to imagine really bad scenarios after we die that gives us a real rational fear of death. Okay, great. Thanks. So let's apply that to the show then. There are lots of ghosts roaming the American Horror Story universe. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is death bad for them or for which ones of them? (laughs) Okay, excellent. So first of all, um, the ghosts in American Horror Story, they don't have to worry about that uncertainty. So they know that they've died and they know they're continuing to exist. 
Um, and so that first option, that's off the table. But as we see in American Horror Story, whether or not death is a bad thing for them really depends on what happens to them after they die and, you know, what sorts of things they're doing after they die. So you can look at someone like Nora in season one, who's basically stuck for all eternity, wandering around in the basement of the murder house, searching for a child, longing for a child that she doesn't even really want. And she doesn't even really understand why she's searching for this. So that seems like a pretty miserable existence. Um, Hayden, again, in the murder house, is existing in a state of perpetual rage. She's constantly mm -hmm. seeking revenge for the wrongs that she sees as having been done to her before she died. And she doesn't seem to be able to let go of that or focus on anything else. And so it seems like some of our ghosts are existing in a state of eternal misery. And oftentimes it seems like it's because they're clinging to things from their past life or from when they were alive, things that were unfinished, things they can't let go of, and things they can't really resolve now. But there are other ghosts in the American Horror Story universe uh, that seem to be fairly well adjusted to their new existence. So Sally, for instance, at the Hotel Cortez, she spends most of the season pretty sad. She's in a lot of pain. But then she finds out about cell phones and Twitter. And <laughs> that was a great she's story. able to have this really meaningful existence because she's getting something she needs, positive feedback, attention, love, through this medium of Twitter. And so she finds something that makes her life good or her, I guess, her death good. Um, Mr. Mm -hmm. March, he is able to carry over a project that meant a lot to him before he died and to complete this project in his death. And so he finds a protege to finish his project, which, you know, happens to be murdering quite a few people. Um, but for Mr. March, this is a very meaningful project, and the completion of it makes his life, or his existence, rather, um, it seems to be worthwhile because he's finding meaning in this. And so it seems like for our ghosts that their deaths, just like anyone's life, is not intrinsically good or bad. Uh, it depends on the kind of death they're having. It depends on the kind of experiences that they're having and the projects they're engaging in after they die. Um, so you can think about someone like Fiona Good from Coven who wakes up surrounded by knotted pine. And for her, this means she's in for a lifetime of misery. Um, but yeah, it seems to be really situational. Or a death time of misery, as it, as it were. <laughs> so many fun memories there. That's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so some philosophers like Bernard Williams argue that under certain conditions, immortality might be a bad thing. Can you explain yeah. those conditions? Absolutely. So first of all, we can think of really obvious clear cases where immortality would be a bad thing. So think of Delphine in you know season three in Coven. She becomes immortal, and then she gets buried in a box for hundreds of years. <laughs> right. And so her, her immortality is not working out well. Now, of course, she gets dug up, and then things get even worse for her. But you can imagine her just spending eternity in that box. That's horrific. So definitely not a given that immortality is a good thing. Yeah. But great. what philosophers tend to talk about when they say immortality can be a bad thing, what they mean is even under good circumstances where you have freedom, you can pursue projects, you can get to know people, even under those circumstances, death might be a bad thing. Um, Bernard Williams, for instance, argued that if you live long enough, if you, or rather, if you exist long enough, um, all of your goals and all of your desires are going to start to drop away. You'll have projects that make your life meaningful, but you'll start to complete those projects. And even if you replace them with more projects, eventually you'll complete those projects as well. So we can think about the ghosts in American Horror Story as having a type of immortality. Even though their physical bodies are gone, their consciousness, 
their, you know, their minds continue to exist. And so that's a type of immortality because they're continuing to have experiences. And so if you think about Ben Harmon, when he dies at the end of season one and he ends up in the murder house as a ghost, we kind of feel like he's getting a happy ending, kind of feel like things are okay for him now. And part of that is because he's got some meaningful projects he can pursue as a ghost that will continue to give his life meaning. He can relate to his family. He can chase people out of the murder house to keep other people safe. And in addition, he gets to keep being a therapist. Now, he may have had a hard time committing to his family when he was alive, but he was always committed to his patients. And as a ghost and a therapist in the murder house, he's actually got a lot of people around him that he can help. So Hayden and Tate both have a lot of negative emotions to work through. And if they can figure out how to have some professional distance, Harmon, Dr. Harmon may be able to help them with that. Chad and Patrick seem to need a fair bit of couples counseling. Um, <laughs> and again, Dr. Harmon can find a meaningful existence by helping the people around him. But here's the problem. And here's the problem that philosophers see with immortality is that it's not just a matter of keeping yourself occupied for a few years or finding, you know, projects that will keep you occupied for the next hundred years. Immortality is forever, and that's a really long time to continue to fill your life with meaningful activities and projects. So imagine Dr. Harmon helps everyone in the house, and at some point, no one requires treatment anymore. Everybody's really well-adjusted, you know, everybody's really happy. Chad and Patrick have a great relationship, and so they don't need therapy anymore. And in addition, people finally wise up and they stop moving into the murder house. So he's not getting a new source of patience. Well, he's going to have to find other projects. Maybe he decides to learn to paint, and he spends a few hundred years perfecting his skills and becomes a master painter. But then he's kind of done as much as he can with painting, so he has to move on to something else. So he learns a language, and then he learns all of the languages. Each of these projects, although it might take him a few hundred years, are finite in scope. But immortality is infinite in terms of the amount of time you have to fill up. So the problem is that each of these meaningful pursuits will only keep him busy for so long, will only give his life meaning for so mm -hmm. long. Eventually, he'll have done all the things. He'll have run out of projects, and he's going to end up just really bored and without anything to take up his time, without anything to distract him. And at this point, his existence is almost as bad as being you know, locked in a box because there's nothing to keep him engaged or interested, yet he's going to continue to exist. Do you think there are other ways of responding to to the concern that immortality would inevitably become boring? Yes, absolutely. So one thing to notice is that all of the projects I just discussed, you know, learning to paint, learning a language, helping a particular person work through their issues, these are all finite projects, which means there's a clear point at which the project will be finished and you will no longer need to engage in them. But not all projects work like that. So if I set out a project of, you know, reading every Agatha Christie novel, that's something I'll wrap up in a reasonable amount of time. But if I have a project that's more open-ended, that doesn't have a clear point at which it'll be finished, but which I'll need to continue to work on and invest in, that theoretically could be a project that sustains me forever, possibly. So think about Liz. Um, in the whole Hotel Cortez, Liz ends her life, and she you could argue she kind of does it in the right way. Like, she wraps up everything she needs to before she dies. She, you know, sort of makes peace with a lot of things so that she's not dragging all of this pain and negativity with her into the afterlife. But when she is sort of reborn or comes to exist as a ghost, she has before her um, multiple open-ended projects that can continue to engage her for years and years to come, potentially forever. So first of all, she has kind of 
taken on this role of protector of the Hotel Cortez. She's going to keep the ghosts safe. She's going to keep the hotel up so that these ghosts have a place to exist. And that requires, among other things, that she keeps the ghosts from murdering people. Because when the ghosts get bored or sad or angry, they start killing the guests. And that could potentially lead to the hotel being shut down, maybe demolished, something like that. And so she needs to continually help the other ghosts find meaning in their lives. So, you know, for instance, she helps Sally find Twitter. Um, but she's going to have to do this for all the other ghosts, and she's going to have to continue to do this to keep them in line. But in addition, she has a connection to her living son and her living grandchild. And this is a project. You can think of it as a project because it's a project of building relationships. But it's a project that's going to continue to be renewed. So she'll build a relationship with her son. She'll continue to get to know him. Um, they'll come closer. And eventually her son will die. But then she can continue to build a relationship with her grandchild. And her grandchild's a different person. It's a different relationship. She can watch her grandchild have their life, you know, grow up, pursue things, get married, fall in love, all of these things. And then potentially her grandchild could have a child that she could then build a relationship. And again, this would be a novel and new relationship that would require work and attention. And so as long as her family line continues and as long as her descendants um, continue to come and visit her in the hotel, this is a project that will give her life meaning, you know, building relationships, getting to know her descendants that potentially has no end. And so she's got this open-ended project, and this seems like it can sustain her in a way that, you know, learning how to paint maybe wouldn't be able to sustain her. Now, this seems like a pretty big, open-ended, complex project, but it could be the case that we just need a really simple project that we can continue to engage in and that we can continue to find meaning in. So if you look at the laundress in the hotel, she really just has one goal, and that's to keep things clean. But not to keep them clean, to clean up messes. And so she doesn't care that stains continue to be made, that messes continue to be made, because she loves washing sheets. She loves scrubbing carpets. And every time she does that, she finds that activity meaningful, and so it gives her continued meaning in her existence. So unfortunately for her, they're not making nearly as many messes in the hotel as they used to be because they're on their best behavior. But you can imagine a situation where she continued to have messes to clean up and this continued to make her life meaningful. And as long as she continues to find meaning in this repetitive activity or endeavor, then her life will continue to be, or her death rather, will continue to be worthwhile and she will continue to have a good existence. And this seems to be an open-ended pursuit. So this is like a Sisyphus move. Yeah. 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 yeah no. And that's, um, I think it was Taylor argued that, look, if Sisyphus rolls the boulder up the hill and gets it to the top and finishes, well, now what's Sisyphus going to do? Sisyphus is going to be bored. But if Sisyphus keeps rolling the boulder up over and over, but chooses this task and enjoys it and finds meaning in it because Sisyphus is rolling this boulder up and it's his boulder, um, then that's a better existence because even though he's doing the same thing over and over, he's continuing to find meaning in it and he's continuing to enjoy it. So yeah, a Sisyphusian task can give your life meaning forever, <laughs> potentially. Great. You know, your view on relationships and the way they can solve this uh, boredom problem kind of re reminds me of, like, it's at the polar opposite extreme from S Sartre's No Exit, right? Oh, right. <laughs> Hell right. is other people. <laughs> well, the way we can actually find mm -hmm. meaning in our lives on the other side of the spectrum is by sustaining and nourishing these relationships that could potentially be endless well, yeah. and, and you, constantly you changing. And you see that in the American Horror Story universe. Some of our ghosts are constantly miserable because they're focused on relationships that just are causing them pain and suffering. 
other ghosts seem to have healthier approaches to relationships and that seems to make all the difference. Great. So well, yeah, I'm a little bit optimistic there. Great. That's, that's fantastic. Okay. Well, great. thanks so much for talking to us. This was great. Okay, great. Thanks so much for having a conversation with me. You bet. Cheers. Rachel, what do we know about this Rachel Robison Green character? Oh, do we really want to talk to her? We do want to talk to her. <laughs> uh, Rachel Robison Green got her PhD at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She currently teaches philosophy at Utah State University, and she's the co-host of this great podcast, uh, I Think Therefore I Fan. That's I Think Therefore I Fan.com, all one word. Um, sold wherever popular podcasts are sold. Free wherever popular podcasts are free. Yeah, sold, sold for free. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Hi, thanks for talking to us today. Oh, thanks so much for calling me. Oh, sure. Yeah, it was, it, it was nice to, to be able to make the phone call and um, treat this like other interviews. And I'd just like to reassure our audience, by no means are you on the phone in the very next room. So you, you, you could be in lots of places, anywhere in the world, <laughs> maybe France. I don't know. But you're definitely not one room away on the telephone no, doing a phone not. interview. All right. <laughs> But we're, we're, we're treating you as a guest, so um, I, I speak on behalf of Rachel and myself when I say um, welcome and, um, and, and be our guest. All right, so uh, what was your favorite season of American Horror Story? Oh, I love all the seasons of American Horror Story, but if I have to answer with the season that immediately comes to mind, I would say Asylum. I think that one's just a gem. Um, I missed the seasons with Jessica Lange, and I think that she was particularly good in Asylum. And I also loved the Lily Raid storyline in Asylum. Oh, yeah, that, that was fantastic. Particularly the, the, the whole demonic possession stuff. I'm a sucker for demonic possession movies. Uh, I think The Exorcist is the scariest horror film of all time. And uh, so, I, uh, yeah, I thought that one was a treat. Yeah, we, we've talked about this um, previously that when I was um, a kid, that was the sort of thing that scared me most about horror films, too. So what what is so scary about demonic possession? Okay, I've, I've got a philosophical angle on this. It might, be, it might be nonsense. It might just be straightforward. The thing that's scary about demonic possession movies is that you're possessed by the devil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the devil's scary. The devil's pure evil. Or sometimes you're not possessed by the devil. Sometimes you're possessed by just a demon of some type Mm -hmm. um, or another person. But I think from a philosophical perspective, um, one of the things that's particularly scary about uh, possession movies has to do with personal identity. Mm -hmm. So um, if you think about it, our judgments about personal identity, our judgments about a person remaining the same person from one moment to the next, even though they've undergone change, are just absolutely crucial for getting around in the, the universe, for uh, functioning well in the envir- in our environment. So human beings are social animals, um, and we need one another to survive. So I'm picturing a case in which you know early primitive humans are um, making plans, say, to try to capture some prey or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's important that we're able to make plans with one another, but making plans involves making identity judgments, right? I make an arrangement with you to go help, you know, capture that boar over there. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm going to need to be able to coordinate with you. And coordination requires judgments of identity through time, right? I, I, if I'm going to make this plan with you, you need to be the same person five minutes from now that you were when we made the plan or else the plan just isn't going to work. Right. Um, and it's not just that kind of coordination. So um, our moral judgments are dependent on judgments of personal identity. Uh, if I'm going to hold you morally responsible for your actions uh, from to, uh, that you may have committed on Tuesday, I'm going to have to. It's going to have to be the case that you're the same person who who committed those actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, obviously, relatedly, our criminal justice system relies on accurate assessments of personal identity. Our judgments of whether we're safe <laughs> require uh, judgments of personal identity. Right? Like, I'm not going to climb into bed with my spouse at feeling confident that I'm safe at night if uh, I can't be sure that you're the same person and I can rely on roughly the same behaviors uh, that, that I have come to expect. So um, so, so you think I'm safe, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so judgments of identity are just crucial uh, in human experience um, for all sorts of reasons. And so I think you, you see this, this case of, you know, a little, in the movie of a little girl... Um, humming a song there's no reason to think they should know right mm-hmm. um, and you go oh that's not Mary there's something unsettling about it the, the, the unsettling thing isn't just oh my gosh maybe it's the devil or a demon it's that very recognition that's not Mary right? that's, that's someone else mm-hmm. um, and that, that's what I think is from a philosophical perspective particularly frightening about demonic possession Mm-hmm. Or not just demonic possession, possession period. Right, any, we can't any... be confident in our identity judgments. Yeah, although if, if we're not talking about demonic possession or evil possession, um, the situation isn't as dire as, as you perhaps make it out to be. It's so, not as dire, so, but it'd still be scary. It would it'd be scary. But say, suppose that, that um, unbeknownst to you, I were to become possessed um, before this evening by i don't know let's let's say god um <laughs> you know and so we're, we're lying there in bed and and you don't know it but i'm omnipotent um and omnibenevolent it, well that would be scary for different reasons it, it, it would be but it, it seems like you're in line for a good time if that happens that's all i'm saying right <laughs> all good all powerful a girl's best friend Uh, yeah, that presumably that doesn't happen very often. All right. So <laughs> at any rate, that, that's fascinating. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, travel, safe travels. We've got another interview coming up in just a few minutes. So you'll want to, um, you know, speed home because you're not All in right. the next room. And we'll, and we'll set right. things up. Okay. Toodaloo. Toodaloo. All right. Next up is Seth Walker. Um, tell us a little bit about Seth. Seth is a doctoral student at the University of Denver, studying religion, media, and popular culture. Hi, Seth. Hi, Richard. Thanks for coming on the show and talking to me today. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Good. So let's, let's dive right in. Um, we got a couple or a few questions for you. At the beginning of Coven, we see that the Coven's supreme Fiona is beginning to fade both in health and sexual vitality. This is because the new supreme is ascending. Fiona doesn't take this well. How would Buddhism diagnose her response and what it might, what advice might it have to offer her? 
Yeah, so, you know, Fiona's a really interesting character in the show, and um, she does a great job at engaging some of the issues that Buddhism directly attacks head on, so to speak. Um, and one of these is that life is, is uh, filled with change and impermanence. Um, we call this anika in, uh, in Buddhist thought. And one of the reasons why Buddhism sort of diagnoses our existence as one of suffering or unsatisfactoriness is because we don't really come to terms with this. And we long for things, we thirst for things, we crave things, and we create these attachments when we do that. And we have this sort of misconception that these things are permanent and static, and then we can uh, preserve, preserve them in some sort of state. And the thing is, they're just in constant flux and change. And Fiona <laughs> is not uh, accepting this clearly, right? Mm -hmm. She's attached to youth, and she equates this to beauty in particular, which is also problematic. Um, and, you know, we, one of the things that we we learn a Buddhist thought here is that these cravings, um, you know, they're, they're like a fire, right? The, the, the so-called fire sermon sort of frames it like this, where these thirsts are like a fire that's consuming things, and it's it's never satiated. It's just sort of lapping things up as it goes from one thing to the next, and it's never truly satisfied, just like Fiona, right? Um, mm -hmm. She's got this relationship with the Axeman later on in the series, and he even kind of diagnoses her on that, too. You know, he says... You've seen the world, you've, you've met all these people, you've had all these things and experiences, and you're just still not happy, right? And uh, so, you know, one of the things here that we have to pay attention to is that it's the attachments that she's forming and these lines that are at the, the root of her suffering. And uh, we call this dukkha in, in Buddhist thought. Um, and these thirsts gets ca get characterized, and in, in, you know, they're sort of broken down in three particular ways here. Uh, in the Buddhist first sermon, we get this understanding that some of these thirsts uh, deal mostly with sense pleasures, which we see a lot of in the series. Uh, or existence, which mm -hmm. Fiona demonstrates very well, uh, or the annihilation of negative states, um, so doing away with things that are displeasing, which we also see in Fiona. So she's a great character for this. Um, so, I mean, it's sort of the the takeaway that she could be getting from, from this sort of understanding is that she just needs to pay attention and stop denying the reality that she's well aware of. I mean, she knows the new Supreme Cycle. She murdered a previous one. As she understood her powers were growing. The same thing is happening with the new Supreme Ruin to replace her. And she's well aware, to, aware of these cycles of old age and death and birth, uh, but she's choosing to, to not accept them and hold on to something that you can't hold on to. And she's going to be unhappy until she comes to terms with that. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, great. Um, next question. Some characters like Delphine and Marie are immortal. Is their immortality a good thing? What might Buddhism have to say about that? Yeah, so, uh, well, with immortality, um, so, th I mean, the very the very notion really flies in sort of the face of Buddhist thought, uh, because the nature of the self in Buddhist thought is a bit tricky. It's, it's, not, it's not this static, um, sort of permanent thing or soul that's sometimes recognized in other traditions um, that carries on indefinitely as the one piece that is always static and permanent and ever-changing. Um, in Buddhist thought, we've got this idea that, you know, not just everything around us and the world itself is in constant flux and characterized by impermanence um, and interconnection and interdependence um, and interrelationality. But even the self itself is characterized in this way, too. And we've got what's referred to as the five aggregates. And what we perceive as a, an individual is a result of sort of the coming together of these five different pieces. We've got physical form sensations, perceptions, uh, volition or, or mental formations, and, and consciousness. And these are also in flux as well. So to think about something 
that never actually dies or changes uh, doesn't really fit with Buddhist thought. It's, it just it doesn't work based on how we've got this cosmological framework. But having said that, in the show, the way immortality exists actually does a really good job of, of preventing or of presenting how uh, even when we have something, one of these thirsts for the thirst for existence, um, even when one of those is seemingly being fulfilled by characters on the show, uh, it still demonstrates that Dukkha is not eliminated, right? They're still unhappy. They're still not satisfied. Uh, with Marie, we've got um, her commitment to Papa Legba. She's always got to sacrifice a child every year, right? And mm-hmm. She doesn't like that. <laughs> um, Delphine, she refers to her own little hobby as being messy, right? It doesn't bring her any joy. She just drains these people of their blood and she's got this fixation on, on death and um, it, and youth and she's never happy either. Um, and yet they're living forever, forever right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just not bringing them that joy. So, I mean, so that's, I, I think the presentation of immortality does a great job at demonstrating how that thirst for existence is not actually something that when fulfilled is going to eliminate dukkha and, and bring that satisfactory um, nature of existence or happiness. Um, so the self isn't static, the self isn't permanent, uh, so nothing could really be immortal in that regard. But even if, in other words, still wouldn't really do the trick, you're bypassing some of these issues that we that we find throughout the show instead with people like Fiona. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and then finally, what is the Buddhist practice of mindfulness, especially on the foul, and how might it assist the characters on Coven? Yeah, so mindfulness is, is a key feature of, of Buddhist philosophy, um, and it refers not to just sort of this deep awareness of everything, uh, not just appreciating every single moment, in other words, since they're always fleeting, but paying very close attention to the nature of the impermanence I've been talking about and uh, using that to dissolve these longings and attachments that we form, which are what lead to our unhappiness and not being satisfied and, and suffering. Um, uh, so, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, he's a, a pretty prominent uh, Buddhist uh, Buddhist thinker and teacher and a very prolific writer. And he deals with mindfulness quite a bit in his work. A lot of his popular literature, too, engages it with some, some great examples. And, and he's got one, I'll, I'll relay real quick here, um, about doing the dishes. Right? No, nobody really likes to do the dishes. And uh, you're always thinking about something else when you're doing the dishes, like, oh, uh, you know, I'll have that cup of tea when I'm done doing the dishes or I'll – I'll go sit down and watch a show on TV or go read a good book or, or go do whatever, right? So you're not really focused on the task at hand. And the idea here is that if you're always thinking about the future, about what you're going to do next or living in the past, you're never actually living in that present moment, which is all the time. So if you're never living in the present, then you're never really living. So being mindful of everything going on is, is part of that, and that's sort of the lesson here. Um, now, when we bring that practice, which we which gets developed in later Buddhist uh, thought, um, of meditating on actual dead bodies and actually using a dead body, if not visualizing it, but having one there, and meditating on death and decay, then it, it really, in sort of a more of a graphic way, highlights the nature of our existence in this cycle of death. Um, you know, we're all going to rot. We're all going to we're all going to decay and decompose. Um, these aggregates will disperse upon our biological death and reform based on these karmic waves that we've generated uh, into something new, perhaps. Um, and, it, you know, this is something that Fiona could really learn from as well, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it, the death and decay are these natural processes. And whether it's this miracle drug that uh, she's seeking early on in the series 
or this uh, grant of immortality from Papa Legba, uh, which she is denied, um, ironically, uh, based on the fact that she doesn't have a soul, which mm-hmm. is a, an interesting nod to the, the, Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist line of thinking here. Um, still doesn't work. And I mean, so it, her remembering that might be the sort of shock that's needed for her but uh, the other thing with that i mean and, and we see meditation on the foul and on this death and decay um as a, as a good way to engage thinking about uh the thirst for sense pleasure as well um we see this in a lot of different characters Ma, you know, madison montgomery and fiona are two really good ones but we also see this throughout uh zoe and kyle perhaps too is another good example um and the idea here is that it's hard to really lust after something or to seek this sense of pleasure when we start thinking about other people as these shells that are just filled with bones and blood and pus and mucus and bile and so on. Um, so it keeps that in check and it keeps us very well aware of the nature of existence and you know, how everybody's interconnected and interdependent and what's actually comprising individual form. Awesome. Well, very interesting. Thank you um, so much for talking to us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Cheers. Next, we talked to Charlene Elsby. Um, Tell us a little bit about Charlene. Sure. Uh, Charlene is an assistant professor and philosophy program director at Indiana University, Purdue University, Fort Wayne. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Richard and Rachel. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Excellent. Yeah, thank you for talking to us. All right, we've got a couple of questions for you here. In your chapter, you write about the differences between Plato's and Aristotle's take on how the soul relates to the body. Can you tell us how certain characters in American Horror Story exemplify those differences? Absolutely. Uh, So let's talk about Coven, because that's the season that I covered in my chapter for the book. Uh, What's interesting about Plato and Aristotle's concept of the soul is I think they're both based on Plato to begin with, but Aristotle makes it a little more refined. And we can see this exemplified in some of the characters in that season. So uh, the Platonic tripartite soul, uh, he said the soul has three parts, and a good soul has them all in working order, where the rational part of the soul has control over the appetitive part and the spirited part. So the parts that, you know, make you desire bodily things or where you get angry or vengeful are supposed to be controlled by the rational part. So that's where we're starting, and I think that's a really cool concept that we can see demonstrated in a character like Madison. Uh, so when she gets pissed and turns that bus over, that is the spirited part of the soul acting out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought that was super cool. Uh, another character where we might see you know, that those concepts of the soul exemplified is Zoe. Like her whole thing is that she can't have sex with anyone or else mm-hmm. they'll hemorrhage and die, right? <laughs> uh, which we could explain. <laughs> Yeah, we could explain as uh, an overactive appetitive part of the soul. (laughs) Uh, But where Aristotle advances on that is, well, um, we do see these things exemplified in a good soul. Like you can still get angry and hungry and thirsty and whatnot, but it has to be at the right time and in the right respect, like for the right reasons. So Mm -hmm. I think that he might actually justify Madison's turning that bus over because it seems a pretty uh, proportional reaction to what happened to her. <laughs> okay. Oh, wonderful. Great. 
Okay, so another uh, fun character is Kyle Spencer, the sort of Frankenstein monster kind of character. Uh, you discuss his dislike okay. of his new body parts. Uh, why do you suppose we prefer our own body parts to those of others, even if the other body parts are better for our purposes? Right. Uh, so one of the theories I wrote about uh, was how we, our souls, pre-birth, choose a particular body, and that body is supposed to be the most capable body that you can find for doing whatever it is you're meant to do on this planet, right? Uh, but uh, in going into a little more detail about that, I think that over time especially, like uh, when Kyle comes back and he's got these body parts that don't belong to him, uh, we develop our habits and like parts of our character uh, based on our body parts. And like, I know how upset I get when you change something out that I'm used to like using in the world. Like if I'm wanting to use a particular pen and then I find one, but this one's too thin or this one's too <laughs> big and it makes writing uncomfortable. Uh, just extend that theory to like having a hand that you're not used to. Like all of the things right. that you're used to doing in the world depend on you having like these particular body parts. Right. So to mess around with that would be pretty disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. Our final interview of this episode was with Carrie Callis. Tell us a little bit about Carrie. Sure. Carrie is an associate professor in cinema and television arts at Columbia College Chicago. And she's currently working on a novel about Marie Laveau, who we'll get to talk to her about today. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Richard. Hi, Rachel. How are you? Good, good. You? Thank you very much for talking to us. It's nice. Oh, it's my pleasure. Nice to do this. Okay, Rich, you All want right. to dive in? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> in your chapter, you discuss the connection between voodoo and jazz in New Orleans. Can you tell us about that connection? Yes. Yes. It's. Uh, I'm not a musicologist, obviously, but... But um, there's, I think the the real connection is the Congo Square, which um, actually still exists today in New Orleans. And most people agree that the birthplace of jazz was in New Orleans. Um, and that it actually came from uh, this Congo Square, uh, which was um, located in the Tremaine neighborhood. And it's right in New Orleans, um, right across from Rampart Street in the, in the kind of north of the French Quarter. And obviously, Treme is known, you know, it's a really famous neighborhood for its history of African-American music. Um, and the, the story behind it is that um, in the 18th century, all of the uh, slaves and the Africans that were enslaved were, they passed a law that allowed them to have Sundays off from their work. So even though um, this code noir is what what the law was called was implemented in um, the early 1700s, um, it it gave the Af you know the Africans a day off on Sundays, um, but they started to um, congregate in places all over the city, and uh, they would have dances and they would have. Um, <clears throat> They would sell things um, and bring their wares, and they, you know, they would go to places like along the levees and in public places and in backyards and really anywhere they can find. 
so finally, um, they designated a place um, and said, you know, okay, there's a new ordinance that there's no more gathering in except for this one location of Congo Square. So they would, on Sundays, they would come and they would, I mean, it really was a celebration of African culture and it was a way for them to stay connected to their cultures. Um, and <clears throat> Marie Laveau, uh, the voodoo queen of New Orleans, uh, started attending the dances and started using those dances as a place for her to express her spirituality, which was, which was voodoo, but that's kind of the white people's word for hoodoo because the, the, the true spirituality that she practiced was an amalgamation of all different kinds of um, Native American traditions, uh, Caribbean traditions, African traditions. And so when she would hold these dances, the musicians who would come there and they would play, they were really reconnecting to their African roots and using drums, which were illegal in any other place in the world, in the New World, except for New Orleans. And the reason was is because they, you know, the slave owners figured out pretty quickly was that was how they could communicate. They communicated through their drumming and through those rhythms and those beats. And so it, across, across the rest of the country, drums were illegal, but they were allowed on Sundays and they were allowed to practice um, their, their form of spirituality. So, you know, jazz is not a con, is not, is, it was an evolution. It wasn't something that was just born one day. And what happened is that those, um, those sort of, brief religious freedoms that they had on Sundays, they were allowed to practice their voodoo ceremonies, and it actually allowed them to take part and to have these social gatherings and entertainment. And Marie Laveau took advantage of this, and from like the 1820s to the 1860s, um, it, it, Congo Square gave the opportunity for people from all the different tribes to get together. Well, of course, the white people were fascinated by, by the rhythms and the music. And they, I mean, the real voodoo uh, dances and the rituals were a lot more secretive and they were not really for public um, entertainment. But she used this as a way of entertainment. And, and, you know, like I said, it was a celebration of African culture. And so the, jazz, the music of jazz and blues also are based on those rhythms. You know, most musicologists don't make that connection that voodoo was, is sort of at the roots of, of jazz, but it's impossible to overlook the, you know, the idea that, that there was this incredible connection to the rhythms, and there still is. And actually, they, they changed the name of Congo Square for a while to Beauregard Square or something, trying to, to change the, the uh, trying to get people to um, not embrace this, this Afri purely, you know, African-American music that was being played. Um, 
out of fear mostly, but they, they, I think it was 2011, they changed it back again. And now um, if you go there, you can, there's a sign there that, that um, marks it as Congo square. And that's actually where they started the first jazz um, festivals, you know, back in the seventies when they first started. And um, eventually they had to, they became so popular. They had to move fairgrounds, um, but it's still, um, you know, it's still based upon those same first rhythms and beats that that those African um, slaves originated and brought from their homes all across Africa. Um, so it's a uniquely American kind of music, just like just like voodoo hoodoo is. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's a unique American spirituality. And it does have its roots, you know, in, in those African bamboo dances and beats that were used at that time. So you had mentioned... Yeah, oh, yeah that's great. great. Very yeah. Interesting so you had mentioned Marie Laveau, um, the, the sort of historical figure. Um, in your chapter, you talk about Marie Laveau as being a moral agent and having moral motivations, right? Um, as a know, character in American On, on the story. character, she does some pretty yeah. unspeakable things. Um in, in what sense should she be conceived as being moral? Well, you know, I'm, of course, she's my favorite character in the series. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, from my perspective, I think I would argue that, yes, she does, she definitely does unspeakable things um, to create drama. But I don't think she was probably that much unlike the real historical Marie Laveau. In, in the series, I'm, she is... Um, <clears throat> she is actually acting in retribution for the slaves who were tortured by uh, Delphine Lalaurie for um, committing these unspeakable, unspeakable acts of torture. And she considered herself sort of a, a scientist who liked to experiment and do all of these uh, really repulsive and repugnant surgeries on people. And so what Marie Laveau is, in the series is doing is uh, when she punishes La Laurie, it's in retribution for not just torturing her lover, uh, Bastian, uh, but also for performing a, a surgery on him where she puts a bull's head on him and, and turned him into a minotaur. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's one of the best scenes. I know that is one of my favorite scenes. And ultimately she she is, you know, she's motivated by by revenge certainly, but she's actually in everything that she's doing, she's usually acting for other people and not as much or a, out of a personal motivation, you know, like Fiona only is interested in the in the um, the actual uh, immortality in sort of a vain reason, and and it's Fiona who breaks the truce between the the witches and the voodoo's, um, and Marie is sort of forced into taking that action um, once. Poor Delphine LaLaurie is dug up and Mm -hmm. brought back to life. (laughs) Well, she's not really brought back to life. She's immortal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Great. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that, that, that's, a, that's a compelling defense of her. <laughs> well, and, and, and also her other, when she, my other favorite scene is when she uh, resurrects the zombies. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's totally because of uh, her client, her client whose son is attending an integrated school and is lynched by, by a bunch of rednecks. So, you know, when she sets those zombies on the rednecks, we're all cheering to see those, those uh, army of undead <laughs> yeah. going yeah. after Henry murderers and killing them we're all cheering yeah i killed those rednecks <laughs> right right yeah that, that was one of my favorite scenes too so i i'm sort of a big fan of all sorts of horror films um i'm sort of less interested in zombies than i am in a lot of other things except for when it's voodoo zombies oh, yeah, we and voodoo zombies. I, lo- I love the old you know um white zombie and i walked with the zombie movies and you know Voodoo zombies with evil masterminds controlling them remotely. It's, it's classic. It's great. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. Yeah. Um, oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. All right, Rach, what are we liking this week? Well, clearly American Horror Story. American Horror Story is pretty good. That's, that's my takeaway from those interviews. But I think we've maybe said enough about this. Yeah. Uh, uh, we started watching The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's off to a great great start. It seems like they have a good sense of... Um, well, they have a good sense of scary imagery. Mm-hmm. So a lot, of the, a lot of the time when TV shows... Or not just TV shows, movies or whatever... They're showing the scary thing. It's it looks really CGI or really lame, but it seems like this show has a good sense of what is actually a startling image. We're not very far in, but yeah, but the the creepy factor is up high. Um, it's a Shirley Jackson story, so that that's always great. Um, it's nice to see really good stories from before, sort of getting this kind of format and exposure and. Yeah, seems to me that um, maybe other than Stephen King stories, um, there's just not a lot of place for the really good stories. And then instead, you get some newfangled, you know, oh look, it's it's um, a CGA version of the Tooth Fairy, yeah, <laughs> you know, and a house full of yuppies just moved in, and, yeah, and yeah. they're going to get in their SUV and drive away as fast as they can, but it's going to follow them wherever they go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so. Um, yeah, you know, I I could go for a lot more of this kind of thing. I should do all the Edgar Allan Poe stuff and yeah, that sort of thing. This has got a really classic horror feel that I'm liking a lot. Yeah, yeah, great characters too. Um, and then the other thing that we're liking is we went to see the new Halloween movie. The new Halloween, yeah, yeah it was a lot of fun. We went in thinking surely this will just be about Jamie Lee Curtis being a badass, and how much mm-hmm. of this can we tolerate? But it. It actually, there were a lot of um, fun characters. It was funny at times. Um, and they didn't overdo it with the, the badass. Yeah, and one thing I really liked about it is it, it seemed to be, um, in addition to being a sequel to the original that sort of conveniently ignores all the other sequels and, and their storylines, it was a real homage to the original. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just you would be in that those same neighborhoods and it had the exact same feel and then yeah. using the original score with a little bit of updating here and there and the camera angles and stuff. Um, it was a new story, um, 
so it wasn't just the same old thing, but it felt very much the same as watching the original for the first time. And I appreciated that a lot. Yeah, uh, it's worth mentioning then, too, that I, I think in certain ways, horror movies over the years have gotten much tamer, which might seem like a weird thing to say. But in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of nudity and a lot of gore in, mm-hmm. in horror movies. Um, and more recently, it's almost like there's been a PC move or something away from that. And mm-hmm. they, they, a lot of that has been replaced with CGI. But uh, it, it, um, CGI used to do different things, not CGI gore and CGI nudity. <laughs> right, right. But uh, so uh, just, you know, advanced warning, if you're going to go see this, this isn't a tame version of a Halloween movie. It's got the nudity. It's got the, the um, it's very creative with its gore. Yeah, I think, you know, just to describe a little bit of it is probably not a spoiler. So in one memorable scene, um, a fella gets his head smashed in by a boot, and it it looks like a virtual river of brains just (laughs) oozing. So there's a lot of that kind of thing. If that's not your cup of tea, then maybe this movie is not something you should go see. Yeah, but um, really fun. Um, Really appreciated it. comes from Christina. Christina writes, I don't know if you all are experts on rules of the road or traffic laws, but it doesn't matter. Even though my question is in the driving realm, I believe it boils down to basic ethics. It is the ethical truth that I seek. Suppose you're driving down a multiple lane road and you are informed by a road sign that your lane is about to end in 100 yards. Is it ethically superior to merge as quickly as you can, often leaving much of that 100 yards of lane left unused? Or is the morally correct choice to drive that 100 yards and merge at the end? Of course, as I play this out in my head, we assume all the other drivers would be making the right choice too. So if I choose the first answer, that lane will always remain relatively empty. And if I choose the second, everyone would wait to merge near the end. I don't remember this in traffic school or ethics 101. Please discuss. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, first of all, yes, we are experts on the rules of the road. <laughs> Speak for not, not that that matters, but um, <laughs> sure. We, we, you know, we know about sewing. We know about the rules of the road. We know about cooking. Um, you know, child psychology, um, dog grooming. Just, just assume we know it. All right. <laughs> no, um, false. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, right? So, I mean, the, the thing to do is, you know, not to take advantage of other people and go as far ahead and as you can, and then merge in at the last second to where if you were way behind somebody in line, you end up way in front of them, mm-hmm. on the one hand, as she points out. On the other hand, if everybody does the right thing, you've got this wasted lane, and it's the situation's uh, okay. a lot worse. So, what do you think? All right. It, uh, so, I think that people who continue to drive in a lane once it... Okay, so so imagine that the lane, it says it's ending, and you've got the dotted lines, and then the dotted lines disappear, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's the, the road's still wide, almost like it has two lanes. In my opinion, unequivocally, that is now one lane. Yeah, yeah. That, the person right? passing on the right there needs to burn in hell. Yeah, that's a horrible human being. That, that's a deal, yeah. <laughs> okay. So long as we're agreed on that. Yeah. Then, yeah. So, Worse than Stalin. <laughs> so I think... I think when it comes to the merging as soon, as quickly as possible, 
I will put myself in the camp of always merges as quickly as possible. But then, of course, I get in the the lane I need to turn from like three miles before I need to turn. So yeah, or sooner. I'm, I'm a nervous Nelly in that way. I mean, sometimes we'll drive from like Salt Lake City to Las Vegas and you'll think, well, it's a left exit. <laughs> so somewhere around Provo, we'll, we'll get there on the left. Yep, that's correct. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just... You know what the conditions are at the precise time that you're merging, right? Um, but you don't know what they're going to be in a few minutes. So why not just merge? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. This is this is a classic Kantian sort of question, right? You universalize the maxim where everybody gets in the right lane, and then suddenly all the traffic's in the right lane, and the other lanes are wide open, and therefore that tells you you shouldn't do it. Um, although what that really should tell you is just Kant's wrong about ethics so <laughs> almost completely. Um, I see. I thought it this. I thought this question begged for an Aristotelian analysis, mm-hmm. according to which you've got a shitty moral character mm-hmm. <laughs> if you don't merge. Right. There, there's that. There's also a, a care ethics approach. If nobody cared what other people were doing on the road, there would be no road rage. I don't know if that's how most people conceive of care ethics. <laughs> I actually call this I don't care ethics. But there are times in life where it's good. To just not care. <laughs> I'm, but on the road is not one of those times. Well, you should pay attention to what other people are doing. Um, but you shouldn't care that much what other people are doing. So once once I was in one of these situations and the, the lanes were going to merge and the traffic was pretty backed up and I was in the right lane, just looking mm-hmm. for the spot. And I noticed up ahead of me there's this guy in a truck, a big rig truck, not a pickup mm-hmm. truck or something, 18-wheeler. And... He had positioned himself such that he was blocking the the far right lane. Um, and then when people would start to get in that lane, he would climb out of his truck while driving. He had the door open. He was standing on that little step, shaking his fist at people. Oh, my goodness. This, this guy really didn't want anybody to gain an advantage. I mean, it was you know such that he was driving a big rig in a traffic jam from outside the vehicle. Right? He cared too much. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So, Christina, our response is um, do the right thing. Merge. Merge. And if other people don't, don't don't beat them or anything. Well, <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with that. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but I do think, like, I genuinely think, I've said this lots of times, that those people who take that opportunity to, to Zoom in front of people that... That we're waiting we're there a lot longer. Yeah. Like, that really says something about their characters. It does, yeah. Yeah, you, you should um, you should feel really awful towards them. Um, but if but they're going to do it... You shouldn't exhibit road rage. Yeah, don't exhibit road rage yeah. and, and don't give yourself a stroke or a heart attack. And, you know, um, driver's going to be drivers, <laughs> as you kids say. Okay. Well, that's a wrap. Episode 8 is in the can. Um, and more importantly, season one is in the can. Yep. Everything, once again, came up Charbonneau. Um, so, what, what are we doing? We're, we're off for a little while. We're going to be off for roughly a month. Roughly a month. We'll, yeah. we'll be back in early December with, and with all new episodes. Right. You can, you can um, be following I think com for updates on when we're coming back. Um, or our Facebook page, I think, Therefore mm-hmm. I Fan. Various other social medias. Instagram, uh, Twitter. 
Yeah, so just to recap the season, um, we did some episodes that weren't um, spooky in the month that wasn't October, and then we had October, and we did mostly spooky stuff with one exception. We'll be back in December. Um, does that mean we're going to do all Christmas-themed stuff? No. Nope. I, the way I'm conceiving of it is we should have one episode dedicated solely to um, Chevy Chase's um, <laughs> profanity. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> laced rant in Christmas Vacation. Um, one, one dedicated completely to the Krampus. The Krampus, yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the elf thing is what I was really excited about. So this would be a philosophy of language-based episode where we okay. analyze the sentence... Christmas is the best day in the whole wide world. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, and if we're not going to do those things that we're now promising we're going to do, then we're just a bunch of cotton-headed mini <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. We'll see you in about a month. Yeah. See ya. <laughs>